Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Tonight's readings are from Deuteronomy and Colossians. Uh, the first readings from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and can be found on page 143, starting at the first verse. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you were about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The reading from Colossians is from chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, and can be found on page 957. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such thing, anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord Forgive has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the one body. 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry, there's a theological reason that that gate should be open. You can ask me about it later, but I'm just, I couldn't get up and not, and anyway, never mind. Nothing to do with the sermon, not a clever kinesthetic introduction or anything like that, just me and my OCD, my theological OCD. Um, Richard's my name. Uh, great to see some new faces here tonight. Let me add my welcome to you. I'm the site pastor here, uh, looking after, as Louisa mentioned, this one of the four sites that makes up Christchurch in the West. Uh, and really great to be gathered with you all this evening. Um, even better to be able to hear from God in his words. Let me pray as we uh, come to unpack this passage together this evening. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. Thank you that you long to be known. Uh, and so you've given us your word and the scriptures that we might uh, see who you are, that we might learn how it is that you engage with this world that you've made and that you've loved and that you love, and especially how you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in him. Uh, Father, please be at work in us by your spirit tonight uh, that we might uh, see what it is you have to teach us this evening and be transformed to be more and more like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, most of you will have heard of Ross Gittins before, right? He's the economics writer for the Sydney Morning Herald uh, and writer of uh, many fantastic books. One of his books is called The Happy Economist. I mean, is that a thing? I don't know. Anyway, but yes, The Happy Economist. Most economists are grumpy, but he's a happy one, he says. Uh, this book, uh, The Happy Economist, is all about what economics can teach us about living a happy life a full life, a life of deep wisdom, a life of joy. Uh, he summarises the social sciences research on happiness like this. The quote will be up there on the screen for you. He writes, It might sound like Sunday school, but hard-boiled, evidence-driven psychologists are always urging us to express gratitude, to show kindness, and to dig deep. According to research by the psychologist Robert Emmons, when people feel grateful... They not only focus on the positive aspects of their lives, but also on how others have helped them. And thus the emotion of gratitude fosters a desire to reciprocate and help others. Not surprisingly, people who practice gratefulness tend to be happier. It makes sense, right? But isn't it nice to know there's data to back it up? Uh, every now and then, uh, psychologists, social researchers, economists actually hit on something that's true. And this, it turns out, is one of them, because in our passage today, uh, the Apostle Paul shows us the secret to living the kind of life that God offers us in Jesus, that life we've been talking about in the last few weeks, life to the full, life of deep wisdom and joy, a life, if you like, of, of real happiness in the Lord Jesus. And what he tells us is that the fundamental posture that forms the foundation of all Christian living is this, verse 17, right from the end of our reading. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there are actually three times in our passage tonight. Be thankful, sing with gratitude in your hearts, give thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a thankful life. At its heart, genuine Christian living is thankful living. That's the secret. It's what drives faithfulness to Jesus. It's what underpins true wisdom and generates fullness. It's the opposite of the Jesus plus kind of life that we've been talking about through Colossians that we're so tempted to live. Jesus and something else is what I need. Jesus is good, but I need this as well to be fulfilled. Thankfulness is the opposite of that kind of Jesus plus life. 
And so we want to ask the question, how do we learn to live uh, thankfully? What does it look like to do thankful living? Uh, We're going to see three things this evening, and you'll uh, see the headings up on the slide as well. We need to know the source of thankful living, the shape of thankful living, and the power for thankful living. We're going to work through each of those things as we unpack this passage together. Point one, the source of thankful living. The thing about thankfulness and gratitude is that it's always responsive. Uh, You can't just kind of be generically thankful. This is where some of the the stuff in the social sciences research goes a little bit wrong. Just be grateful for stuff. You will feel better. But you can't just be grateful. You have to be thankful for something, and you have to be thankful to a person. You can't just be thankful for, you know, the random genericness of the universe. You're always actually expressing something relational when you're thankful for something. And that means that if you're going to live a thankful life, you need to know where it is that you will get that something and from whom it comes. You need to know the source from which this kind of thankful living flows. Uh, Unsurprisingly, given where we've come in Colossians already, uh, the source of thankful living that we're being directed to here is Jesus. Yeah, you got it. Uh, That's where our attention's directed, right at the beginning of this passage. Uh, But we're not directed uh, simply to Jesus, as good as that would be, but to a specific moment in the gospel message, the gospel announcement about Jesus, to his resurrection and his ascension. Verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, What's the source of thankful living? What is it that's going to make us thankful? The things that are above, Paul says, where Jesus is. The firstborn from the dead who now reigns over all things at his Father's side, the Lord of all creation. That's where Jesus is. And that's where we should go to find the treasures of wisdom that are hidden in him, to find the fullness that God has poured into him and through him into our lives. But notice something else. Jesus isn't alone up there above. Paul continues, verse 2, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead and now he is above. He lives and reigns with his Father in the heavenly places. And if you are in him, then that's where you are as well. Uh, Notice again, it's happening all the way through Colossians, just how closely Jesus' people, his body, are associated with him. If you're trusted in Jesus, then what's true for him is true for you as well. Just as he died to sin, so you have died... Just as he was raised to new and everlasting life, so you have been raised. Now, if that's true, then that's what should motivate you, Paul says. That's where your attention should be, because that's where you'll find the source of thankful living. Seek the things that are above, he says. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. In other words, what he's telling us to do is to look up, to to raise your eyes, to see what's up there. It's a spatial metaphor, right? Up down, top, bottom, above, below, heaven, earth. Paul says, don't be looking down at the ground all the time. Take your eyes off your feet, off the path just in front of you and look up instead. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about what it's like to actually walk around in real life. I don't know if you've ever been walking along, looking down at your phone and nearly running to someone, walking the other way. I'm sure it hasn't happened to anyone here. You're kind of walking around and you go, oh, suddenly I'm in the middle of the road and there's a car, whoops. If you walk around looking down at the ground all the time, you can't see what's up ahead and you don't notice the world around you and what's happening around you, you end up bumping into stuff or worse. 
You're much more likely, at least this is what my dad taught me when he was teaching me to drive, you're much more likely to have a car accident if your eyes are fixed on the road just on the other side of the bonnet of the car instead of actually looking at the horizon so you can see what's coming your way. That's the message here in this section of Colossians. Look up. See where Jesus is and therefore see all of the world in relation to him. A world that's no longer under the power of the elemental spirits of the universe, the rulers and the authorities, but under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is above all things and before all things and in whom all things hold together. Raise your eyes to him, see everything else in relation to him. And so if you do that, stop running into trouble all the time because you're fixated on what's right in front of your feet. Look up. But notice that looking up at Jesus requires some effort. It doesn't happen automatically. Verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Uh, Speaking here about the great promise that the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead and now sits at the Father's right hand, will return as well to bring new creation. Uh, The source of thankful living, the source of life itself, now, though, is hidden Jesus has come and has died and has been raised, but at present we don't see him. And actually the world in which we live is an often pretty baffling mix of the grace and power of God on the one hand, along with all kinds of evil and mess. What God has made us to be in Jesus won't be complete until he returns to judge the living and the dead and usher in the new creation that began with his resurrection and has begun in the hearts of his people but is not yet complete. But what we're being told here is that if you look for them, then the signs will be there, the signs of that glory that is to come in your own life and in the lives of your sisters and brothers. The source of thankful life is hidden amongst us as we are with Jesus, raised with him, and hidden not just amongst each one of you, but amongst us as a people. Uh, When Paul writes you here in this passage in our English translations, he's using the, the plural form of the Greek word. In Greek, you're allowed to say use not just you, use is what he's saying. As we lift our eyes from the things of earth to see the resurrected Lord Jesus, we're going to more and more notice the very ordinary people who we go to church with every Sunday. Sorry, it's true though, just all pretty ordinary, right? We'll notice more and more that the very ordinary people who we go to church with every Sunday and pray with in our fellowship groups during the week are actually showing all the time little glimpses of that glory that's hidden in Jesus, of the new life that's in him and is working its way out in us. And so when you look up to Jesus and so see the world more clearly, you're actually going to notice your sisters and brothers more clearly. We're going to come back to that a little bit later in the sermon. What kinds of things will you see, though, as you lift your eyes to Jesus? What can you expect that to look like? Uh, Or to put it another way, what shape does a life lived looking up to the source of life take? What shape does the life of thankfulness take? That's where we're going in point two. I wonder if you've ever been uh, woefully underdressed for an event. Has that happened to anyone before? You turn up to something and you're like, yeah, Adam's just continually woefully underdressed. For it. Anyway, that's, he volunteered himself, so he walked into that one. Um, I read a story during the week, uh, all the tributes you know over the last few weeks um, to uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, I was reading a story um, from one of the composers who wrote a piece of music that was played at her funeral, and he was telling a story about meeting the Queen at a function with a bunch of other composers, musicians, Um, singers, that kind of thing. And he was talking about how he got completely lost in conversation about some intricate detail of how someone's symphony works or something and didn't realise that all of the guests had been called into the dinner hall. And he finds himself, awkwardly, standing in the middle of a room in Buckingham Palace with 
the Queen's servants and staff and the royal family. And just him kind of standing there in the middle. The staff are glaring at him. You're not supposed to be here. What are you doing? And the royal family are kind of just blissfully just kind of like, it's fine, it's all good. Keep calm, carry on. He's like, what am I supposed to do? I can't kind of like, the doors have been opened. They're starting to walk in. I can't kind of just like sneak past the queen and work my way into the banquet hall. So he joined the end of the procession. Just joined the royal family as they were announced and entered into the room. And you know what? He goes, what I really remember thinking is I was woefully underdressed for that occasion. I was wearing a suit, sure, but I didn't have a crown. I didn't have kind of all of the paraphernalia. And there's just little old me wearing this everyday kind of, you know, suit as I walked in after the queen. Whoops. You can, turn, uh, you can turn up to somewhere and just be really wearing the wrong clothes, can't you? That's the kind of metaphor that uh, Paul is using in this next section of Colossians chapter 3. He talks about clothing as a way of showing us the shape of thankful living. As there in verses 9 and 10, you stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self. Uh, and he tells us uh, what clothes to strip off and what clothes to put on. It's nice when the scriptures do this. Here are some things not to do and here are some things to do. Excellent. Uh, it's as though someone is kind of walking around and looking at the ground, as we've been talking about, right, and doesn't realise that they've walked into a fancy restaurant or something and they're just kind of not dressed for the occasion anymore. But if you look up, Paul says, you will see what clothing to wear. You will know how to present yourself. You will know the kind of behaviour that's expected of you. If you've been raised with Christ, if your life is hidden above with him, then there are earthly things to get rid of and above things, heavenly things, Jesus-like things to put on. Uh, the passage starts here with things to get rid of in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The list continues then a few verses later in verse 8. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Uh, those uh, two verses are kind of in two different halves, and they're two different kinds of sin, actually. Uh, that first uh, list in verse 5 is uh, kind of all about sins of desire. And the second list in verses uh, 8 and 9 is about sins of disunity, desire and disunity. Uh, the first half in verse 5, sins of desire, uh, focuses pretty expli explicitly on sexual sins. Uh, fornication is the, the Greek word porneia that we get pornography from. It's just a catch-all word used in the scriptures for any sexual activity outside of the male-female marriage relationship. Uh, impurity refers to the particular kind of, of moral corruption that affects our hearts as we engage in those kinds of activities. The word for passion uh, here is a, a word that really can just mean kind of intense you know, affection and energy for things, uh, but uh, often carries the idea of sexual lust. Uh, evil desire is the Greek word epithumia, the, the kind of over-desire that describes a human heart that's been overtaken by desires that are lined up all in the wrong way and just kind of becomes the power in your life that takes over you. These sins of desire here get linked to idolatry, uh, which, of course, is all about taking something that's good and making it a God thing, from a good thing to a God thing. Uh, why focus on sexual sins in this particular way? Uh, I think it's likely because of the hyper-sexualized nature of the Roman culture that the readers of this letter, the first readers, lived among. Uh, that's probably, I think, why we find greed in this list, which usually refers to an obsession with money and material possessions, but uh, here seems to be referring to a kind of sexual greed, which, to be honest, would be a pretty good description of Roman sexual practices where a husband had a wife for procreation purposes and was free, really, to go and find whatever sexual gratification they wanted anywhere else outside of that. 
More broadly, less specifically to that culture, of course, sexual sin is just an area in which our desires, when we don't rein them in, really can cause harm both to ourselves and to others. And so it makes sense to highlight them, as the scriptures often do. There's more to say about this, um, not least the fact that when you scratch the surface layer of our own culture, when you kind of get below all that talk, uh, well-meaning talk about uh, freedom and self-expression and consent and all those things, but when you scratch beneath the surface of that, we're not all that far removed, really, from ancient Roman culture in this way. Uh, If you want to think some more about it, you can go back and listen online to the talk on sex and sexuality from uh, our recent Unlearning Untruth series. They're all on our website, uh, and you can think through it some more. But for now, I just want you to hear two things about this. Um, Firstly, sexual sin, both in the heart and in practice, really does actually matter. And so if you are engaged in sexual activity with someone who you're not married to, or if you have a problem with pornography, or if you're struggling just with sexual thoughts and desires that you don't know how to get a handle on, do something about it. Get some help. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Louisa or Andrew, your fellowship group leader. We want to help. Put it to death is what Paul says. Kill it. Because these things belong in the grave with Jesus. But secondly, these things belong in the grave with Jesus. And that means that there is forgiveness and healing in him for all of these things. No sin, even sexual sin, is too big for the mercy of God. So, two things to remember about these first lists of uh, of sexual sins, sins of desire. They belong in the grave with Jesus and they belong in the grave with Jesus. That's the first half of that list. Uh, The second half of the list is a list of uh, sins of disunity and more specifically sins of speech. Uh, Anger here isn't about the uh, emotional response of anger in and of itself, which of of course sometimes is right and proper. Rather, it's about a particular disposition towards anger as your kind of natural response to things. Uh, Wrath in this list is actually a different uh, Greek word to the wrath of God, which is also mentioned in the passage, but with a a different Greek word. And again, it's here a description of a particular disposition. That's probably better translated, if you like, as rage. Someone who flies off the handle really easily allowing anger to take control of their thoughts and their actions. Uh, Malice is straightforwardly a desire actually to do harm to others. And those dispositions, anger, rage and malice, are expressed in speech as slander, as abusive language and as lying. Uh, What's on view here is the kind of heart that produces the kind of speech that can just destroy communities, actually. And it's worth noting that despite the powerful descriptive language for these dispositions and ways of speaking here, this this kind of community-destroying speech can actually be quite quiet and subtle. A slanderous word can just be kind of snuck into an otherwise pleasant conversation over supper after church. Abusive language can take the form of little put-downs that over time just corrode someone's sense of self. Lying can come in the form of half-truths that aren't always that obvious as lies at first glance. Uh, Why I'm kind of trying to unpack this a little bit about the the way that these things can happen quietly and subtly is that we need to take really seriously the reality that this list of sins of disunity and speech here is held just equally there alongside those sins of desire and of sexual sin. It's really important to note that because I think it's possible that if you've been a Christian for a long time especially, you might well be thinking to yourself even now, well, sure, sometimes I snap at others and I don't mind kind of, you know, just saying a few unkind words about someone if it helps curry favour with the person that I'm talking to when I get the chance. But at least I've got my sexual life in order. That's what matters. Don't be fooled. 
If that's you, you are still looking at earthly things instead of raising your gaze to the Lord Jesus. You're looking down at the ground and not looking up at him. And he says that how we speak to and about one another is just as important as what we do with our bodies. Setting your mind on things above uh, may well mean taking a really serious look at your own speech and making sure that you shut down anything that tears others apart instead of building them up. We're going to come, as we do every week, a little later in our service, to a time of confessing our sins to our Father. And it might be that actually when we get to that moment, you want to do some thinking about, are there sins of speech in my life, sins of disunity that seek to tear others down, that I need to confess to God to seek his forgiveness for and his uh, transforming work in our hearts. Uh, Paul says that all these kinds of things, sins of uh, disunity, sins of desire, that they're things we need to put off, to put to death, to strip away. And he tells us why. He gives us three different reasons for it. Uh, Firstly, he says, uh, the first reason that he gives us is God's wrath, which unlike that other word for rage that's in the list there as well, doesn't mean God just kind of flying off the handle and losing his temper. Uh, God's wrath is much deeper than that. God's wrath is his own righteous indignation against everything that diminishes and destroys this world that he's made and that he loves. It's his set determination not to let sin or evil or death have the final say on all that he has made. And that means, this is why it's important for us to see in the scriptures the things that, that you know, kind of it says that God's wrath is coming upon us because of these things. Because those things, the fact that God's wrath comes in response to them, tells us that those things, as good as they might feel for us, can't possibly be good for us in the end or for the world of which we're a part. And so if you lift your eyes to where Jesus is, you're going to start more and more to see those kinds of things for the gangrenous, corrosive stuff that it really is. That's the first reason we're given for putting these things off God's wrath. Secondly, uh, we're told that that these things aren't to be what you wear anymore because they're just not you anymore. You have been raised with Christ. You've been hidden with him, and that means that you've left these earthly things behind. Verse 7, Paul writes, These are the ways that you also once followed when you were living that life. But that's not you anymore. Verse 10, you have clothed yourselves with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Remember back to the beautiful poem that there is in chapter 1 of Colossians, that language of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And here we are, if we are in him, if we trust in him, being remade in that image. We now bear the image of the one who is the true image of God. And as you set your mind on things above, you'll gain deeper and deeper knowledge of the one in whom all things hold together. You'll see things more and more in light of his glory and grace. You've been raised with him. He is your life, and that renewed life is changing you and taking shape in you, and not just in you, but in us, in his body. And that's the third reason that Paul gives us for putting these things off. The third reason is that our new identity is not just something for each one of us as children of the true and living God, as wonderful and true as that is, but that what we receive is a new corporate identity. Uh, The old self and the new self in this passage uh, is literally just in the Greek, uh, the old man and the new man. And that word man in the Greek is used really just to mean humanity. The old humanity, the new humanity. That's what we are. That's what church is. It's a new way of being human together in the light of all that God has done in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And what characterises the new humanity is that the old divisions that separate people have been done away with. That's why Paul goes where he does in verse 11. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, Greek and Jew, Gentile and Jew is the fundamental dividing line in the Old Testament between humanity. Everyone was in one of those two groups, Jew or Gentile. And so Jewish men were circumcised as a mark of their separation from the uncircumcised Gentiles who didn't know God. But now in Christ, Jew and Gentile together are welcomed into the people of God. Barbarians and Scythians are two races that the Romans loathed. They mocked the barbarians for their way that they spoke. They sounded very uncouth, apparently. And they mocked the Scythians for their lack of culture, bogans. But now in Christ, all languages and cultures are invited to praise the true and living God who made all of them. Slaves had no power in the ancient world, no rights to protect them, while free citizens could call on the power of Rome to come and protect them at any moment, anywhere on the earth. I'm a Roman citizen. And the Roman army would step in. But now in Christ, the powerless and the powerful alike are citizens not of Rome, but of heaven. In other words, anything and everything that divides humans from one another has been done away with. Christ is all and in all. And if that's the case, there can be no greedy using of one another's bodies and no destructive abusing of one another with our words. Those things are not on for this new humanity, this new community formed in and around the Lord Jesus. And so instead, Paul says, we're to keep looking up to Jesus, stripping off the clothes of the old humanity, those sins of desire and of disunity, and in their place to put on the clothes of the new humanity. And thankfully, he tells us what it is. Here's the dress code, right, for people who've been raised with Christ. Verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. That's the dress code for us as God's people. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness. That's the kind of life that actually makes sense when you lift your eyes to where Christ is. And Paul sums it up in the next few verses, verse 14. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Uh, love, the bedrock of uh, Christian life and Christian community, uh, means really when it comes down to it, always seeking everyone else's good. Love, as Paul writes in Romans, does no harm to a neighbour. Peace, again, means not letting things that, that could so easily divide us get in the way of us showing that love to one another. It brings harmony between very, very different people who now live together in the one family together in Jesus. This is the dress code for those who have been raised with Christ. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, peace. Now, remember, as we remarked earlier on, uh, that this is the shape of thankful living, not just for each one of us, but for this whole community, right? And so I want to kind of flip around what you might normally do when you read this passage a little bit this evening. Uh, should you seek to be like this in all of your relationships, to be those things to other people? Yes, of course, obviously. But you should also be seeking it out in others. The hidden glory of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus is glimpsed in those moments when your sisters and brothers are all of those things to you. 
Uh, I had a, an example of this actually um, just this morning. Um, I've got uh, six-month-old twins in my family, and they have been sleeping like total garbage the last week. Everyone's exhausted. No one's had any sleep. We're all grouchy with each other, and we're just like, does anyone want to buy a pair of twins? Anyone? Good price. Just get rid of them. It's awful. So I was over here at church this morning. Alice and my wife were stuck at home, having been trying for like an hour to get one of the twins to sleep. He was just screaming his head off. She was done. She's just like, I just, I don't know what to do, and I can't do it, and I hate it, and I want to throw in the towel. Someone at church this morning noticed that she wasn't here, said, how's Alison going? Is she all right? And he said, you know, it's been pretty rubbish week. She's trying to get one of the, the, the twins to sleep. All of a sudden, I get a message from Alison saying, oh, this person actually just walked over this morning and, and said, do you want me to take the twins? I said, sure. I don't know what to do with them. Brought the twins over here to church, and by the time I walked out at the end of the service, there's like four different people from our church family just passing my twins around so that Alison can have a break. A glimpse of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus, of the compassion and love and kindness and meekness and humility and love and peace that comes about when we raise our eyes to him. So the next few weeks, as we gather together on Sundays and as you gather in your fellowship groups during the week, as you see one another in various contexts, I want you to pay special attention to the way that others are serving you, are being these things to you. If you want wisdom, if you want life to the full, if you want to have your mind and your heart lifted to where Christ is, then pay attention to those mostly small, mostly fairly unassuming ways that your family in the Lord are caring for you and ministering to you and praying for you. And as Paul says, be thankful. Give thanks to God for the wonderful blessing that it is to serve and to be served as part of this incredibly unique community, right? There's nowhere else in the world like a church where none of the normal human divisions get in the way, where women and men, single and married, straight and gay, left and right, monarchists and republicans, Apple and Android users, dog lovers and cat lovers, whatever the stupid things that so often divide us as human beings, they don't matter because we all share in Jesus. That's the shape of new humanity. That's the shape of resurrection life. And there's nothing else like it in all the world. It's easier said than done, of course. You see those moments of the glory that's hidden with us as we are with Christ in heaven. But we need all of those things and it's hard to do them. And so you've got to ask the question, where are we going to get the power to live like this? There's a hint that I've just alluded to right at the end of verse 15, the secret to all of it. Be thankful. What's the power for thankful living? Where does it come from? How does it help? Why is it that Paul says again and again, thankfulness underpins all of this kind of life as people who have been raised with Christ? Point three, as we draw to a close, the power for thankful living. Following those two lists, clothes to strip off, clothes to put on, we get a kind of summary of Christian life in community. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, there's that word again, gratitude. With gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Uh, the word of Christ here in this verse uh, doesn't just mean read the Bible, though you should. Don't get me wrong. You should be doing that. I hope that you are. But it means more than that. It means uh, having the uh, message of the Bible, the good news that Jesus is the Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, having won the victory over the elemental spirits of the universe and over every power and authority, including the power of death and sin. The word of Christ dwelling richly among us means having that story shape each of our own lives and our life together as a community. 
And Paul says we have a role to play in that. He says we're to be teaching and admonishing one another. That is, we're to be reminding each other of who this Jesus is, of what he's done for us and what it means to lift our eyes to him and to follow him more and more closely. We're to keep lifting one another's eyes away from those earthly things to see Jesus where he is at the Father's side. We're to do it with gratitude in our hearts, so much so that it spills out of us in song, which we've already done tonight and we'll keep doing. And did you notice that word again, gratitude? It sets uh, sets Paul up for his big summary of what it means for each of us and for uh, all of us as Christ's body together to live his risen life. Verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks. Uh, To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, I think, means making sure that every single word and deed of your life is something that Jesus himself would be pleased to do. In other words, make him proud of how you live and do it all giving thanks. Why the note of thankfulness? Why does Paul keep coming back here? What does that have to do with being raised with Christ? Uh, Thanksgiving is the secret at the heart of it all because, of course, to thank someone for something means that you've received it from them as a gift. Think back to all those things that give shape to thankful living in community, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, uh, forgiveness, love, peace. Uh, For you and me, we know we need those things, but it takes a lifetime to grow in getting good at them, right? And yet they describe just a regular day in the life of the Lord Jesus, don't they? The reason that the secret to it all is thanksgiving, the reason that all of this can be described as thankful living is that Jesus has already done it for us. What we have to learn to put on, and we stumble as we do that, and we have to try again, and we have to learn that we're not doing it as well as we thought, what we have to learn to put on, he has always been from the inside out, from the very centre of his being and person. And that means that our living is always a thankful response to what he's already done for us in his death and resurrection and is doing in us even now by his spirit. The dynamic at play is right there in the second half of verse 13, which I conveniently skipped over before, so I could use it now. Second half of verse 13, we read, Forgive one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Do you see it there? Do these things for one another because the Lord has done them for you already. To the cross, of course, that we see that forgiveness written large. It's there that the Lord Jesus endured the wrath of God against all our impurity and evil desires, against our greed and our anger and rage and malice, against all those destructive behaviours towards each other, towards ourselves, towards God's world. Jesus endured it all in our place on the cross. And that means that there is nothing left for us to do but to respond with a thankful heart that flows out in this kind of life, in word and deed, seeking to make the Lord Jesus proud of who we are and what we do. And it's as we look up from the foot of the cross at the crucified one who now reigns above with the Father that we'll more and more see his hidden glory revealed in our own lives and in our community together. That's what thankful living means. Let's pray that the Lord Jesus himself will be at work in us as we seek to live it out together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible gift that you've given us. Uh, Not wisdom from a philosopher, 
uh, not a plan of action for living a life well. No, the gift you've given us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who gave himself to be one of us, to live among us, to die our death and to be raised to new life, which he calls us to share in. We thank you for the joy of knowing uh, that in some strange way, by the power of your spirit, what is true for Jesus is now true for us as well, that we have been raised with him and are hidden with him in you. That brings us deep comfort and deep joy, Father, and we know that there's nothing left for us to do because you've done it all in Jesus. And so we ask that you would give us deep thankfulness in our hearts, that you would grow in us a gratitude in all that we do, so that more and more we might be shaped like this Lord Jesus, and so bring honour to his name in everything. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.